okay, this is a very unofficial show. Uh, for those of you out there who are wondering just uh, what is about to occur, I'm going to give you a little, a few of the ground rules. We are breaking in a new engineer tonight. And that's worse than breaking in a new pair of shoes. Bring it up there. They get awful squeaky. Very tight. Okay? That's right. <laughs> hey, look All the way now. They expect every last drop of this crummy mediocrity. Every last drop. This is absolutely the worst piece of music ever written by the foul mind of man. Bring it up there. Precisely why I picked it. The quality of masochism is not strained. Ow! Look for myself. It's okay. If you uh, care to, uh, if you care to experiment out there, I'm coming to you uh, also uh, in color. Uh, in, in addition to that, you can hear me on FM. It comes through very clear. You can hear the snorts and the wheezes. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Excuse me. While I light my pipe. Mind if I light my pipe here? This is the mystery sound here. WC feels. Ah, props don't work. The whole thing. I'm just wild about Harry. Uh, tonight we're going to do a very special thing here. Uh, we are saluting as part of the vast public service programming of this radio station. Well, you've got to keep your eye on me, Cornell. Now, now watch me carefully, ma'am. Already, so you're watching that guy. He's not doing the show. I'm doing the show. He's very loud, but I'm more important here uh, at this time. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh yes. Uh, oh, oh, we are saluting tonight as a special public service uh, of uh, this radio station. We are saluting tonight the indomitable spirit of man. That little spark of pizzazz that all of us possess and that most of us, throughout most of our lives, attempt to suppress that indomitable spirit of man. Let's put it this way. What was that famous... How many of you... I'm going to go to the brass piggy with bronze oak leaf palms to any of you. How many of you remember the famous phrase that uh, Harry Truman, the, uh, the uh, ex-president of the United States, that famous phrase that Harry Truman applied to... A music critic who <laughs> wrote a criticism of a performance, and I say that in quotes, of Harry Truman's daughter, who at that time was part of showbiz, or at least she wanted to be part of showbiz. How many of you remember the phrase that Harry Truman used? It consists of three letters, and I will give you a clue. Uh, the first letter is an S. I'll give you another clue, if, if it's still eluding you. The last letter of the phrase is a B. You got it now? Well, what we're saluting tonight is the indomitable 
spirit of that. Uh... Okay, bring it up there. Bring it up there. Grass my pants. Very good. Cha 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 cha. This calls for a little uh, kazoo playing. <laughs> Now, now we reset that because we're going to be using that. Now, the reason I salute this uh, indomitable spirit, I have here two little news notes, which I am going to use as the basis for tonight's sermon. We are quoting here from the United Press International, and it comes from Chicago. I'll have to use my Chicago. No, I better not use my Chicago accent. There's a lot of very sensitive people out there. And I myself, having festered for a while on the south side of Chicago, having stood at, uh, on Halston Street at high noon, having walked along Michigan Boulevard with the wind screaming off the lake on more than an occasional moment, having moseyed along Randolph Street in uh, days of high distress, having been totally out of work in Chicago on more times than I would care to discuss, I know this city almost backwards and forwards. And uh, this is a typical Chicago move. Clad in his undershorts and brandishing three butcher knives, the judge dashed into the night to rescue a lady. Dusted circuit judge Joseph Butler lived up to his own dictum that, quote, in a big city, you have to be your brother's keeper. The judge is 56 years old and recently recovered from a heart attack. But he showed himself to be a dynamic man of action Thursday when a woman was attacked outside his west side home. Butler was preparing for bed when he heard his daughter shout from her bedroom, Leave that woman alone! Very good now. Yeah, I hear, want to hear what, what happened immediately. Upon that scream coming out of her bedroom, the judge ran to the window and he saw a man with a knife dragging a woman by the hair across his front lawn. I used words I never used before. I'm quoting the judge here. I used words I never used before, like you dirty blank, get off my lawn, Judge Butler said. He ordered his daughter to get a golf club. Get my golf club, there. Quote, I thought a number six iron would be about right. <laughs> but she came back with three butcher knives instead so armed and stopping only to call the police and throw a raincoat over his shorts and his bare torso the judge ran through the attack you see that old cat going out there with them three butcher knives uh, wishing instead that he had a number six iron at first, I couldn't find him. He was in the bushes, Butler said. But just then, I heard the woman yell again, leave me alone. I ran over to the next driveway and yelled so loudly that I woke up the entire neighborhood. And you know, he took one look at me with my three butcher knives and he ran. Just then, several police squad cars showed up. They came running out of their cars hollering, hey, judge, which way did he go? They ran where I pointed. Within minutes, police captured a man identified as Robert Lee Steele, 20. All he could say was, who was that nut? 
we salute you tonight. It ain't easy to be a guy running around on the lawn in the middle of a Chicago winter wearing nothing but a raincoat, wishing you had a number six iron. That's enough there. That's very good. Will you set that, please? That old judge out there with an old cat, man. I still like that line where he says, I thought a number six iron would be just about right. <laughs> now, there is that. Now, I, now, now, that is... Now, the reason I read this piece in, in, in that specific way, that is a typical example of Midwestern Chicago-type humor. Now, that's not New York humor. A New York judge would not say that. Have you noticed how little humor there is in the New York political scene? Very little humor. You don't, I'll tell you, you the, the pure light of the dedicated reformer shows out of, say, Lindsay. You don't hear Lindsay ever say, you'd never imagine Lindsay saying, uh, I thought a number six iron would be about right for him. <laughs> it, it, it's a sense of humor, that's all I can say. It's a sense of humor. And now, that kind of humor is the kind of humor out of which people like, uh, oh, George Aid came. You know, he was a great, uh, Ben Hecht is an example of that. You know, Hecht came out of Chicago. Uh, Carl Sandberg, you see a little of that running through Sandberg's work. Uh, you see a, a great deal of it running through people. Yeah, Hemingway, what do you think, you know, Hemingway, you don't think that Hemingway is, a, is from, uh, is from uh, Boston, do you? You don't think Hemingway comes from Darien? Oh, no. Oak Park, Illinois. And that, it, that runs right through. I can remember I can remember innumerable comments. This is a typical comment. Like, like uh, I'll never forget the time my Uncle Carl had an Essex. And uh, it rained on it all the time. You know that, that look, this typical American look, is the car in the backyard where there's no garage, and if there is a garage, it's being used for old bicycle tires and junk all piled up to the ceiling. And the car is out in the back. A typical mid I will sketch for you a Midwestern scene. Thing. And the rain has been coming down for years and years on this car. Practically all the paint is now washed off of it. If it ever had any paint, it's about 27 hands old. There's been innumerable people have lived and died and swung and hit each other on the head with beer bottles. Who knows what in this car? You know, whenever you buy a used car, do you ever have the, the funny feeling? How many of you ever really bought a used car and then after you have it for about three or four months, you find something under the seat? You find, you know, it's just something there that, that gives you a clue. It doesn't have to be obscene or anything, just something. And it gives you a clue about a fantastic former history that this car has lived through. Oh, sure, we don't really ever own anything in this world. Let's face it. There's nothing. We're just rented. I'm you, we're all rented people. We're all Hertz people. You ever have the vague feeling that you're here on a very brief, you're on a loan out? And nobody quite knows your, your detached service. They had a great line in the Army like that. Used to call it the TD. Only, I guess this is why some of the greatest literature has been written about 
the army, the war, you know, the wars, that kind of thing. Homer, the Homeric epics, the uh, uh, Caesar and his wars, uh, the the uh, the Roman Empire. All, all, most of the great literature has somehow touched on this subject, because in things like the army, in things like wars, things become very plain that are never spoken. You know, things become very obvious. For example, TD. They don't have much like that in civilian life. You know what TD stands for? Temporary duty. TD. And you find yourself on TD, assigned to an outfit, and forever you're a leper. TD. No stripes, nothing. You're just there temporary. I've known guys that were temporary duty guys for 27 years in the same outfit. They never made them part of the scene. He's TD. Well, now, we're all TD in one way or another. But that beautiful Midwestern scene, I could see that car sitting out there. If you want to, I will sketch now for you a Midwestern landscape. Fences around the backyards. Uh, sort of run-down fences, see. And you could see little stubble sticking up out of the leftover snow from leftover winters. Little stubbles of ancient iris plants that have somehow... That belonged to some other former tenant who lived in this apartment where you're living in, in this little house, this this St. Louis house. Ever heard of a St. Louis house? Well, they've got St. Louis houses in Chicago. St. Louis house is kind of a, uh, oh, it's kind of a half-baked duplex. There's two houses, one on top of the other, and people in former days, ancient ages past, have planted flower beds, which have now since been ground into the dirt and the rubble and the crud of 18 million kids playing backyard basketball. As a matter of fact, backyard basketball is something you don't see much here in the East. But there is not a single backyard worthy of the name in at least seven states that I know of in the Midwest that does not have some kind of a basket nailed on the garage, Nailed on a tree. We had one hanging on a tree in the backyard. Let me tell you, I work, I've never talked about this side of my of kid life. Is the is the magnetic hook shot? <laughs> Every kid, we, the first thing we did, I'd go through the backyard on my way home from school, and the first thing I would immediately, I'm going through the backyard, and I've got a piece of paper. I make a hook shot. Just rolled up piece of paper, hook shot, off the off the bonding board, around the basket. Now, what, what kind of a basket was it? Well, it was a basket one time that I bought at Montgomery Wards. I saved for about 27 years, at least, it seemed like, to buy this basket. It was a green basket. You know, the hoop, very green thing. It had a green thing in the back, the, the, uh, the backing of the basket, uh, and it had, uh, it had white strings. The strings were all long since gone. They came off in the rain and the crud and the snow and the wind, and it was, it was attached to a tree. And this tree was, now, how many of you have lived with a, with a backyard that has an old tree in it that no longer is a tree? It's just a lot of things sticking out, and a few little leaves, and uh, you hook uh, clotheslines to it, and you put baskets on it. And, that, and we, we had made, my, my kid brother, myself, and Bruner had made this bounding, this backboard, you know, rebound board, out of a lot of wood. And there it was sitting up there year after year, year after year, and that thing... You hear that thing? Shepherd cans another one. <laughs> cans another one. Every time I look at, you know, I, really, I can't help it. Every time I look at the television shows or I watch a pro basketball game on TV, 
and I see Wilt the Stilt go up in the air, you know, and he just... I, I, I hear that sound that, that goes through your mind when you do that. Shepherd cans another one. That great sense, that feeling, you know, you know it's going in, you know, that feeling that, that you played basketball. You know that great feeling when you let one go and you know it's going to hit? That uh, there's a great sense of satisfaction in your gut. You sort of turn away. You don't even watch it. You hear it go, goo, 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 goo. You know, around the, around the rim, goo, goo, shoo. Either that or you come dribbling down. One of the greatest sights of all, that one of the great feelings, the, the totally un, un, uh, unrecorded feelings. I've never seen anybody write about the, you know, being a human being, we have millions of little pleasures, little victories in our lives that are never written about as victories and pleasures. Like waiting for a bus, and the bus comes. That's a great feeling, you know. The bus is there. You get in, you know. You've waited and waited. Well, one of the great unrecorded feelings, and it's almost exclusively a male feeling, although I'm sure that there are, you know, there are a lot of girls that have played basketball, but it's a male feeling. You're in the gym, and it's a gym class, you know, and, and you've divided up. You're playing basketball. You know how you always did that to play basketball? And you come dribbling along, and uh, you're you're playing backcourt, and and the hot shots are up ahead of you, Josway and a couple of other guys. You know the, the forwards are going down, and you come dribbling along. Now you're at center court. See, you pass over to Schwartz, and Schwartz dribbles a little bit. He passes a bounce pass back to you, and then there's that little thing. A little thing clicks in your head. You cannot describe what it is. It a little thing says, "Shoot, man, go shoot." You know that thing I'm saying. And you just, you, you dribble, and you let her go from about 30 feet out. And you just let that thing go. And instantly, inside your mind, you know you're hitting. You know, you know you're going to hit. And, oh, what a great feeling. You see that ball go, guy goes up and tries to block it, but it's a long shot. You just see it arching down, arching, choo, that wonderful sound. You know that sound, just choo, doesn't touch the rim. Shepard cans another one. Speaking of getting canned. Okay, this is WNACAM and WRKOFM in Boston. Oh, hey, listen, that reminds me. Uh, we got, it's always a little surprising when you do a show. You know, I'm on five nights a week. Uh, it always is a little surprising to me when you do a show about something which is just totally off the top of the head, which doesn't really mean too much. I'm talking about me when I say editorial you. Uh, I'm always surprised when I do something that I just throw out, just to make casual passing, and it touches a peculiar chord. And the next thing I know, I get about 15 letters or maybe 100 letters on something which never occurred to me that people would be really interested in. And a couple of weeks ago, I did an involved, which I thought was very involved for me anyway. I did an involved analysis of the difference between AM, amplitude modulation, and FM, frequency modulation. In other words, when, it, when I say this is WNAC-AM, and then I go on and say and WRKO-FM, I went on and I described, you know, the whole business of what AM means and what FM means, and uh, I, got all, yeah, I got all kinds of letters and cards about it. And so I thought maybe it might be interesting to go even a little bit further than that because one card came from somebody in Worcester or someplace who said, why does AM not sound as good as FM? 
Well, there's a very distinct reason for that. It's a technical reason. And the first thing I've got to say about that is this, that AM broadcasting is as different from FM broadcasting as the zebras are different from elephants. It is a totally different kind of radio station. Now, most people who, uh, who you know, they have a radio, they've got a tuner, and it says AM, and it, or it says FM, and they just think, uh, I don't know what they think, really. I don't really know what the uninitiated thinks when he turns from AM to FM. I guess he thinks FM means a better sounding. That's all. Or it's hi-fi or something like that. And he never really realizes that what he's doing is tuning in a totally different kind of radio transmission station. Now, they may have the same programs. In other words, I'm on WNAC now, uh, which is AM, and I'm on WRKO-FM simultaneously. So if you, if you have uh, an FM receiver in your house and you're listening to me on a little AM transceiver or tra a transistor or you're listening to me on a little uh, radio in your bedroom or something, if you were to tune me on, on FM, you would hear me at the same time. Or there may be a slight delay, as you know. There's a very, very slight delay. But I would be on simultaneously. Now, the, the, the important thing about it is the vast difference in the sound between the two forms of communication. And they are two different forms. Uh, you know, one of the great unsung men of our time is a man uh, who just died a few years ago, a man named Major Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong devoted his life. You know, Armstrong is one of the great innovators in the whole field of radio and television and frequency modulation transmission. He's the guy that is generally credited with inventing single-handedly, practically, the superheterodyne. Now, what is the superhet? Well, a superhet is what you're listening to if you're hearing me on AM. Uh, in most cases, you're, you're listening as, uh, on a superhet. He revolutionized radio, literally. He took it out of the, out of the stage. It would be like tantamount to putting a, a motor suddenly in a buggy and you've got an automobile. They started out, you know, with four wheels. The difference between a crystal receiver and, or a, a simple bandpass RF tuner receiver, which is what he worked with earlier, and the superheterodyne is a startling and totally, uh, totally revolutionary concept. But now let's get back to why FM sounds different from AM and uh, why technically it does. Uh, to begin with, uh, the AM signal that you're listening to is an amplitude modulated signal. That is, when I talk, in, it's like what you hear on your telephone. When I talk into this microphone now, what I'm in effect doing is merely increasing or decreasing, depending on the kind of the, the frequencies, the, the way my voice goes, the amplitude of the signal that we are putting out. That means the power of the signal, really. Uh, that means the, the, uh, the thickness of the signal. The strength of the signal varies and goes up and down as I speak. Now, on FM, it is not at all that way. When I speak in this same microphone and it is being broadcast via frequency modulation, the amplitude remains the same, theoretically. It is the frequency of the signal that varies, which means that the point of the dial varies rapidly depending on the way I speak. Now, your, your FM receiver uh, tunes very differently from your AM receiver, which means to say that it, 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 it responds to changes in frequency. 
whereas your receiver that you're listening to me on AM responds to changes in amplitude, two different types of receivers. Now, why do they sound different? Well, there's a very good reason. By law, first of all, the signal that is broadcast on amplitude modulation is restricted in its frequency response. That is to say, very high notes are illegal on amplitude modulation. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Well, that's true. And you know why that is? That's because if we broadcast uh, unlimited high frequencies on WNACAM, we would, our signal would become wider on your receiver, and it would interfere with signals next to us, say only 10 kilocycles or so next to us, because our sidebands would become wider. Now we're getting very technically here, technically involved, and I'm not going to describe what to you was, because you're really hearing me on sidebands here, and I'll go into that some night. But actually, by law, a, an AM station is not allowed to broadcast frequencies. Theoretically, I think it's around 8,000 cycles. Isn't it around 7,500, something like that? By law. Whereas an FM st a signal can broadcast signals as high as 15,000 cycles. Now, that's a vast difference, a very big difference which means to say that you hear almost twice as high in frequency on an FM, by law, right? and also technically. You know, it is possible to broadcast very high frequencies on AM. You could, you could make AM sound just as good as FM, really, except that you would interfere with signals all around you if you did it. Now, don't ask me to go into that. Uh, the technical reasons are very definitely there. And uh, there is a reason why, by law, we are not allowed to broadcast very high frequencies. Now, on FM, however, that uh, restriction is different. And so 15,000 cycles. Now, the average ear, when a child is born, a very young child can hear high notes uh, very, very much more than a person as they grow. You know, this is one of the ways of almost like carbon-14 tests that they do on ancient ruins. This is one of the ways that if they really want to find out how old you are, really technically, they feed high frequency sounds into your ears. And they can pretty well estimate almost to within a few months, if you have a really good sound man at work, how old you are. Because this is a progression that goes on throughout your lifetime. And only oh yeah, it's very interesting, technically. And so uh, a child listening to a, a, an orchestra, uh, let's say a child who's three years old, really hears something very different than, say, a 60-year-old man listening to that same orchestra. He hears a very different set of sounds. That's one of the reasons why children often will cry. Uh, a child, uh, have, you ever, have you ever run into the, the situation when you go to a concert hall and a kid keeps crying in a concert hall. That's one of the reasons. He is hearing high notes, and they're, they're causing, they're irritating him. He's hearing these fantastic high notes, which the, the adults all around him don't hear at all. If they do hear, they only hear harmonics of those high notes, and we could get into that. But uh, uh, basically, the child is very much in the same range of frequencies that a dog is in. He can hear things pretty close to what a dog hears. And that's why quite often a child will awaken 
in a, in a house, uh, he will respond to a sound which the other people don't even hear. And if they do hear, it sounds very quiet. There's a little sound, like a door. Somebody will quietly close the door. And the kid, three or four rooms away, will all of a sudden wake up yelling and hollering. It's because that very high frequency made by the squeaking of a door really hits this kid. He's getting a fantastic signal into his brain. And the people standing around who may be 20, 25 years old, they don't hear anything except a slight squeak. So, so uh, we, we hear things just like color uh, is, is ver viewed differently by people. Uh, a, a man who is colorblind has a heck of a lot of trouble understanding what color is. He really does. You, you, you can't explain it to him. And there are many people who are high-frequency deaf, who do not know what a good sound is, who do not know what hi-fi means who do not know why uh, an FM set sounds better than an AM, because they're not capable of hearing, say, over 8,000 cycles anyway. A man, a man who cannot hear over 8,000 cycles normally would not, know, would not hear much difference, really, between a good AM receiver with good loudspeakers and a, and a good FM receiver. Do you agree with me? With, with good loudspeakers. Because he can't take advantage of the additional frequency range of that FM receiver. Now on the other hand, bass notes work in an entirely different way. That will be our next lecture, <laughs> our, next, our next discussion here. Oh, incidentally, this will not appear on the exams. This is totally, uh, uh, this is totally uh, an oral uh, discussion here. All right, now we're back to real life. And um, I, you know, speaking of cars, I wanted, uh, I, and in connection with the judge that goes rushing out into his backyard with a number six iron, I'm thinking, uh, I, I, I've had a lot of requests for people, from people to tell this story again. But it is a true story. And uh, it has to do with this judge and the number six iron. And it's, it's, it also has to do with the backyards of life. The backyards of life. Have you ever driven up and down through, through uh, places like uh, Maine? You ever gone to Maine? You ever been through Vermont? Way out in the boondocks, I mean way out, up in Maine, Vermont, places like that. One of the most American sites that I know of, you don't see this in other countries, and it's because I guess we have this uh, machine society, we have, this, we have a Detroit society, we have an automobile society, that when you get out in the boondocks in places like Maine, places like Vermont, and Jersey too, I suppose, in certain places, you look back at the house, you see weeds growing up, a fantastic collection of weeds, and you see this old crummy-looking garage and a couple of little hand... What do you keep looking at? What are you worried about? A couple of little hand houses and a couple of little joints laying back there. But the, 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 the significant thing that you see in this backyard is an old, defeated car that's beginning to sink down into the mud. It's a deserted car. It's a thrown-away automobile. A car that no longer is alive. It's a dead car. And, and some of these cars up in places like Maine, this is a curious thing about it, are late models. Have you seen this? You see, you see a car like a, like a 50, late, comparatively late. You'll see something like a, a 56 Oldsmobile or a, or a 61 Cadillac or something. And it's, all, it's, been, it's been deserted. It's been 
thrown away, and it's drifting down into the mud. And you see it. You see the crud up to the ankles of, of it, and, the, and there's holes in the window, and kids have been playing. The doors are hanging open. You see this in thousands and thousands of backyards throughout America. You know, I've traveled all over the world, and I have never seen old cars in backyards of any other country. I have never seen an old car, say, in a backyard in France. I'm sure there are garages there. I've seen garages. But never old cars in just ordinary people's backyards. You may see an old wagon when you go way out in the country someplace. You may see an old an old busted-down buggy or something. But you never see a car in America cars. And I can remember looking out of the window. I'm a little kid, see. And my Uncle Carl has this this old Essex, and it's blue. And it's that ink block blue. A kind of washed-out blue, flat blue. It never was shiny. And he, he I don't know where he got the car, because he never worked. Uncle Carl was out of work as long as I knew about Uncle Carl. He was perennially and totally a displaced person in the existence of life, you know, the whole scene. He just hung around, played his banjo, and once in a while, took his teeth out, put them in a jar. And, uh, he would always uh, take us to picnics in his Essex, and we'd go out to the forest preserves. But I remember that car drifting down and becoming not really totally derelict, because once in a great while, he would go out and he would start it. And he would drive around, maybe uh, go out to the forest preserve with it. And then it would spend days after day, after week after week in the backyard, and the rain would come down, and the snow would come down, and the sun would come down on this thing. And it had one of those tops. It was a sedan, you know. It was a, you know, it was a sedan, four-door type. But it had one of those tops that they used to have on cars that was like leatherette. You know, the top it was an insert. And they had things called top dressing. They were always painting tar and crud on the top of these cars. Well, along about the 423rd year of this car's life, part of the top had begun to peel back. And Uncle Carl would go out and once in a while he'd tack it down. Or we would lay a brick on the top of it. Or he would take tar off the street. You know, we had tar that was, uh, that was uh, in the cracks of the street. He would dig up tar and melt it down in the basement and pour it on the top. <laughs> and then, uh, one by one, uh, day by day, uh, struggle by struggle, the top is getting thicker and fatter. It was like a compost heap of little tacks and pieces of paper, and he'd stick cardboard in there. And I'll never forget the fantastic spring. The rain had been coming down for days, and the Essex is standing out there in the backyard. They lived about three backyards away from us, and uh, me and Schwartz and Bruder are out there throwing in a few... Uh, hook shots in the in the basket there, and the day that Uncle Carl's car sprouted mushrooms, mushrooms grew out of the top of his car, and the, yeah, I don't know where the mushroom seeds came from. I guess they from the air. You could see mushrooms growing right out of the side of the car, right out of the top. They're growing right out of the metal, uh, sticking out of the, out of that old leather and everything. It 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 it, it had decayed and fermented now. And once in a while, in the dark quiet of the night, you could hear bubbling and hissing out there. It's fermenting. And you could see those mushrooms growing out. And Uncle Carl would go out, and he'd take the mushrooms off. He'd brush it off. And, and, and you, have you ever seen on the side of old trees that fungus, that kind of 
big things that stick out, red-looking things, those awful-looking, sometimes they're terrible-looking, they look like cancer or something. Well, that, that kind of stuff is growing out of the top of his, 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 his Essex, and he'd go out and he'd chop it off, and it would grow again immediately. Like within 30 seconds, it would grow again. And, and I remember one day going down to the store, going down to the, down to the pony keg. They had a thing called a pony keg. Right? You, you don't have these in the East. A pony keg is a little store that stands in the middle of a vacant lot in the Midwest and sells nothing but booze. That's all they do. They don't serve it. They just sell it. They have a little tiny store, and this guy's standing back there, and he's got cases of beer. He's got cases of, of uh soda, he's got cases of wine, all kinds of real crummy wine, I mean, like, you know, like 10 cents a gallon wine, that kind of stuff that, that you know, that, wow, it just makes you sick thinking, it turns your teeth purple, you know, that kind of junk. And, and he goes down to the pony keg one day, and we're driving down the street, and, and uh, I remember looking up at the top of the car, I'm a little kid, and the, you could see the stains where this, uh, the, the roof has soaked down through it, and you could smell the mushrooms growing in there. And driving down the street with a car that had mushrooms going out of the top on the way to the pony keg is a typical Midwestern scene. Not typical, really, but let's say symbolic Midwestern scene. And, and that judge charging out of his house, I'm give me my six iron! Part of the whole scene. Part of the whole, the whole schlemu. And, uh, <laughs> you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of junkyards and that smell of junkyards, and that uh, that uh, the backyard life. I don't. I doubt whether anybody. I've never read it. Maybe possibly Nelson Olgren might have written about this at one point. But I've not seen any American writer yet describe the tremendous sense of uh, adventure. Uh, it's more than adventure, really. A sense of the hunt. Have you ever gone hunting? And you know that feeling that oh, something's about to happen? It can be almost anything, something great. Or maybe you get skunked, nothing. But that sense of uh, gambling. And it's not really gambling. I don't know what it is. It's a kind of peculiar excitement that develops inside your gut when you're doing this. Uh, no one has described a Saturday morning visit to the junkyard looking for a part for a car and one of the, uh, this is probably as much as anything one of the forces that formed me I, I can remember endless Saturday mornings spent in endless junkyards with Schwartz and Flick and Bruner my uncle Carl just guys in the neighborhood looking for things, burrowing through thousands of defeated cars, gigantic piles of, of uh, generators. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, it, it really is exciting. I remember, I remember I had this little car. See, I bought a car when I'm a kid. I'm about 16 years old. The first car I ever bought was a, was a car that I worked on for about a year, making it so it could go. And It was a little Ford. Great car. And... Uh, I remember spending junkyard mornings looking for 616 tires. Now, they didn't have them piled up. If, if they were piled up, if, if they were in the front of the junkyard, all piled up, used tires, signed, that meant they were good ones. 
those weren't the ones I was looking for. He had prices on those, see. <laughs> and, and I would go to I would go to Leo's junkyard, and I would say, uh, "Hey, Leo, I'm going to look for some tires." He'd say, "Okay, kid," and that meant that I could go back into the junkyard, and it would it stretched for acres, fantastic collection of junk, and I would go back and look at all the wrecked cars piled up, sometimes ten, twelve high, and crawl all over the top of them looking for a 616 tire that had been left on a wreck. And finally, after about three hours of looking, Chris, you didn't really look seriously because you were just looking at all the great stuff. And you'd run across a car that had a great speedometer in it. And it's all wrecked. And you can see blood all over it. It's dried blood. And you can see where the back end is burned out. But there's a great speedometer in it. Or a great gas gauge. Or maybe... Uh, Maybe there's a great uh, gear shift lever, or uh, who knows what, you know, something, a great steering wheel, or, you know, a great wheel, just a, a, a spare wheel. And so you, you get very casual, so you go on from back and you say to Leo, hey, Leo, boy, you got nothing here today. No tires, forget it, Leo. And you, you pretend like you're walking out, so you start walking out of the place. Then you turn and say, hey, Leo, uh, you mind if I... Uh, uh, you know, you got an old wreck back there. Uh, it's got a got an old wreck speedometer. It's all busted up, and uh, I, I I thought I'd like to have the glass. The glass is okay, Leo. Do you, do you mind uh, how much how much how much for that wreck speedometer and the olds back there? And he looks, and of course his mind is immediately going, wreck speedometer, my foot. The only thing good on that car is that speedometer. This kid has spotted it. All right, how much can I yench out of him? You know. How much can I? <laughs> how much can I squeeze out of this kid? <laughs> and you say, well, uh, you know, it's not. A, I can see. I can see the gears are shot, and it's it's, it's, uh, it's shot. But I just want the glass. You know, maybe I'll use the pointer. And he says, uh, look, I ain't going to take it out for you. Oh no, I'll take it out. I'll take it out. I got to, You know, you, you go to the junkyard. By the way, all completely equipped. You got screwdrivers. You got wrenches sticking out of your back pocket. You got a couple of socket wrenches. You got wire cutters, you got the whole scene. And so I said, oh, no, I'll take it out, I'll take it out. I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, how about, uh, he's waiting for an offer, see. See, uh, I'll give you a quarter for it, Leo. I just want the glass. It's a pregnant point. Are you out of your mind? Come on, that's a that's a perfectly good spin. That's the best speedometer in the lot. Oh, come on, Leo. It's got the, uh, the gears are shot. He said, well, all right, uh, 35 cents, go ahead. You've you, you got to take it out yourself, and I'm not guaranteeing nothing. And you say, oh, boy, I hit the jackpot. And you go back there, and you take this. Oh, you struggle, you cut your hand, the blood is pouring out of you, you put a Band-Aid on it, you run around, you struggle hour after hour taking this 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 uh, speedometer out of, the, out of the Oldsmobile, and you finally get it out, you hold it in the sunlight, and you could smell the paint on it. You know, you'd see where you strip the strip the screws, taking it out, and you say, well, I'll, I'll, bet I'll take it down to, I'll take it out of Frank Paswinski, he'll rebore this thing, I'll put a tap screw in this thing, oh, gee, was wow, oh, wowie, wowie, and for the next two weeks, that's your project, installing the old speedometer in your Ford, and you're cutting out the dashboard, you know, the whole scene, you're getting the tap screw set, and you finally, you finally lay in the speedometer cable, and it fits, and you get that thing, and you put the Vaseline, the grease in there, and she goes in, and you take it around the block, and it's going, mm, 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 mm. it's grinding, and the needle is just flipping up to five and down to zero. Mm, 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 mm. Oh, 
And then you take it out and you pull out that you pull out that that flexible cord again. Oh, I see why it's not in the it's not in the slot. Then you put it back in. You go, oh, Wowie, it works! It's up around 30, 30, 35, 40, 45 miles. It falls back to 10, 15, 20. Oh man, the jackpot! And then you wait for next Saturday. Next Saturday, you're after the steering wheel, and you go all over the lot until finally you find. You find this wrecked Pontiac, and it's got this great red plastic steering wheel. Oh, man. And you casually go back to Leo and say, Hey, Leo. Uh, Leo, boy, you sure ain't got no batteries around here today, ma'am. Oh, wow. She was... Hey, Leo, I was looking at that Pontiac back there, and uh, it's, got a, it's got a bracket for the steering column there. Uh... You're working up to it gradually. See, uh, how about that bracket? How much is a bracket, Leo? He said, bracket is $2, man. Those are very rare, boy. They bust them all the time in a Pontiac. That's a $2 bracket, kid. So, wow, $2 bracket, you Well, how about that crummy old rotten steering wheel that's on it? You know, that old steering wheel, you're probably going to throw it away. How much is that rotten? That means that that's what you're really after. He says, oh, that Pontiac, oh, that's a, that's a new plastic kind with a pistol grip. Oh, well, that, uh... It's got a horn rim, you know. It's got the horn ring on it and everything. That'll be, uh, that'll be three dollars. Three dollars? Oh, Leo, you're out of your mind. Listen, if I take it off myself, and it's going to take four days to get that crummy thing off, I got a hacksaw with me. If I take it off myself, how about a buck and a half? All right, make it a dollar sixty-five. Okay, kid, go. And for the next two weeks, you got the steering wheel thing going, putting your Pontiac steering wheel on your Ford. And then after that, oh, who knows? You know, it goes on and on and on. The biggest deal that I ever pulled, the biggest fantastic job I ever pulled, I put a Buick transmission, a Buick transmission, out of the big century Buick. Believe it or not, you're looking at a guy who put a Buick transmission in a Ford V8, 65 horsepower mod. You're looking at a man who knows his junkyards, Dad. I've been there. 